The Canucks got back on the ice at Rogers Arena, but they did it without Elias Pettersson. It's the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery avenuemachinery.ca 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Hit us up. Thoughts, comments, questions, anything on your mind about the Canucks, let us know. We'll try to read as many as we can throughout the course of the show. Again, 650-650 is the text line. Drancer Elias Pettersson certainly not the only forward missing from Canucks practice today, or the only player, I should say, missing from Canucks practice today. A notably light contingent on the ice at Rogers Arena today, but he is certainly the headliner as, you know, it feels like it's been a long time since they've played. We're still 48 hours here uh, away from scheduled game time against the Senators on Saturday. Yeah, and I mean, that game's, you know, how do you project who's going to be in the lineup for that game from both sides, right? Yep. Uh, we're still waiting. It looks like Thomas Shabbat, for example, added to the protocol just this week. Uh, looks like he will be available for the Senators. Chris Tierney looks like he'll, he will be available. Anton Forsberg looks like he will be available. But we don't know what Canucks uh, Vancouver's opponent will look like on Saturday night. Really, we won't until they board their flight tomorrow yep. and come west. Uh, that's how sort of hour-to-hour fight, fighting a fire NHL teams are, the, are, to, are these days. And that includes the Canucks. You know, today's practice, I was curious to see, for example, if Brock Besser, who has lapsed the five days that are required at this point, uh, might rejoin the group. Um, we know that, you know, that contingent of players that tested positive in the States, Dowling, Phil D. Giuseppe, um, Jason Dickinson, we know they're back in Vancouver, uh, but none of them were on the ice today. And also Alex Chason wasn't on the ice, nor was Elias Pettersson, who was added to the protocol late Wednesday afternoon. So... You know, the Canucks ran through practice with only 10 forwards, uh, including Sheldon Rempel, who's not really on the roster. He's on the taxi squad. Um, at, at one point, he had to go back in and change jerseys just so that he was became an extra yeah. with the blue line, which is the fourth line, as opposed to wearing a white jersey, like a separate jersey, uh, to distinguish himself. And, you know, this practice was one of the more interesting ones we've seen from them because this was a really detailed drill practice, right? Bradshaw really ran the vast majority of drills. Bruce set Bruce Boudreaux set them up. He he sort of ran the whiteboard meetings, although at one point um, Shaw came over and asked a question about the drill they were running, and they were sort of going back and forth on the whiteboard prior to a drill. It was very systems-based. A lot of breakouts, a lot of work on in-zone play, uh, some work it looked to me uh, on how defenders should be supporting the attack as well but this was one of those like half-paced a lot of half-paced work a lot of teaching today and and there wasn't really the grueling um the grueling fitness element that we've seen in some of the other practices that the Canucks have run this week Monday and Tuesday um although a lot of it looked like it was still having a pretty significant impact because there weren't breaks. There just weren't enough forwards. So if you were running those sort of two-on-O drills with uh, assistant coaches kind of coming in and defending, like you didn't have a break. Uh, I noticed, for example, Sheldon Rempal was going almost every time because he was helping the vets out, right, by running and giving them the extra break when he could. Uh, It was a pretty interesting sort of dynamic to look at or, or, or... 
observed today at Rogers Arena, and you know the impact. Like if that's the only impact, <laughs> that'll be yeah. that'll be a win. But clearly, clearly Vancouver's lineup and Ottawa's both still in flux as a result of the league trying to figure out how to move forward and navigate this virus. Well, and you're, they're in such a such a difficult position, and so many teams are right. And, and you know, even just keeping it narrow to sports, obviously a lot of people are in extremely difficult positions outside of that realm. But just from a sports perspective, you know, as you said, Bruce Boudreaux has been pretty open about the fact that he wanted to use this week to do a lot of conditioning work with the team, right? I think mindful of the schedule that they have coming up after going through, you know, a long stretch here without playing very much hockey at all, other than that that three and four night stretch uh, in the States between Christmas and New Year's. And I wonder if just, okay, all of a sudden you get down to a certain, you know, you only have 10 forwards available to put on the ice at practice, and it just doesn't become feasible to do that kind of high pace, up-tempo, as you said, grueling, real conditioning skate that you might have wanted to get in. And, and that's, what it's all, that's what it's all about, right, is adjusting on the fly as the circumstances change for your team. So as you said, a bit of a different practice for the Canucks today at Rogers Arena. I'll just run through quickly who was on the ice for our listeners and, and how they were lining up. So it was Pearson uh, with Horvat and Garland, Hoaglander, Miller, and Pod Colson. They only have four more forwards beyond that. So it was uh, Sheldon Rempel, Matthew Highmore, Lamico, and Mott yeah, taking with, turns. And with that kind clearly of Rempel being the of extra. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then on defense, you had uh, Oliver ekman Larson, Tyler Myers, uh, Hughes and Shen, Hunt, Poolman, and Burroughs as an extra, although I know there was some mixing and yeah, matching and, and I would also as well. And I would also say that from – what I saw, anyway, Burroughs um, was the first extra in yeah. in my in my estimation, based on how they started taking line rushes and the way that Hunt and Pullman worked together first during most drills. I would suggest that uh, you know if I was to handicap what the Canucks lineup would look like on Saturday based on the assumption, right, that no yeah. further players are added to protocol, uh, I would pretty strongly suggest that the uh, Hunt Pullman pair will be the third pair. Uh, that's a pair we saw in Anaheim, right? They were sort of, uh, I guess Hunt specifically was kind of victimized on the goal against. But also, I think if you consider what that pair looked like through that game, I mean, was that the only shot that the Ducks had while they were on the ice? <laughs> yeah, it might like, have been. There was something about that pair that I actually quite liked, the one mistake aside. Uh, I, I'd be curious to see them get some run because... You know, Pullman's had really good defensive results for this team. It's just that he doesn't help you control possession, which made him a particularly bad fit for Quinn Hughes. Club's not generating anything when he's on the ice, but if you give him a partner like a Brad Hunt or like a Jack Rathbone, someone who can maybe give you some push, um, you know, I, I'm at least curious to see it for, for five to ten games, and I didn't think I'd be curious to see much about uh, Tucker Pullman prior to. Uh, also, just a note for our audience as we're uh, watching the end of Canucks practice, um, uh, just trying the three players left on the ice. It's Yuho Lamico, Brad Hunt, and Vasily Podkolzin. And Vasily Podkolzin just skated behind the net and alley-ooped, oh, yeah. like did like the Zegras. But 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 with a wrinkle, he alley-ooped to do the Zegras, but he put it short. So he stepped under the puck and headed it over the net to Lamico, who quickly batted the puck in. Nice play, nice <laughs> nice bit of soccer skills from the Canucks power forward. I love to see that. That's some footy flair from the, uh, from the European out here. What a nice wrinkle. As they wrap up and collect the pucks on the ice at Rogers Arena. It's an interesting point about the Brad Hunt and the Tucker Pullman pairing. And, you know, I know, as you said, Tucker Pullman is doing his job in the defensive end. It's been going forward and generating. That's been the problem for the Canucks when he's been on the ice. And with Brad Hunt, you know, 
so many people were excited about what he could provide as a sixth defenseman, a bottom pairing defenseman for this team. And he hasn't had the chance to really consistently show that. And yeah, I think it's a good point. I wonder if maybe you find a little bit of chemistry there. Yeah. They're thrown together in less than ideal circumstances. Obviously Travis Hamanick still not on the ice with the Canucks today, but maybe you can find something that works and, you know, helps you get through a stretch where all of a sudden the schedule is going to start to look a lot busier, knock on wood, assuming no other COVID disruptions with the Canucks or with any of their opponents coming up throughout the rest of the month of January. But you added up who was actually on the ice here today for the Canucks, and it was 17 skaters. And, you know, I think Elliot Friedman has made the point. You kind of look around how the NHL has handled all of these postponements and, and deciding whether to postpone games because of COVID. If you can get to 16 skaters, there's a good chance you're going to play. Now, typically that has been, you know, 11 forwards, five defensemen, but I, I just think considering how many other games they've already postponed, the NHL obviously really wants to get this game against Ottawa on Saturday. They want to get it played. I, I know we've had people asking, you know, okay, I, I see Ticketmaster shows the game is canceled. Is this game still happening? Look, as far as we know, it's on the schedule and it's going to be at 50% capacity. And whether or not the Canucks do get Besser or Dickinson or any of those other forwards, Dowling to Giuseppe back, I, I think if they have 17 guys who can go, even if it's not the ideal split, even if it's 10 forwards and seven defensemen, and assuming Ottawa stays healthy enough to play as well, I do think we're going to see this game go ahead. Just based on everything the NHL has done up to this point, it might not be <laughs> the most ideal product, especially when you consider that it's the Ottawa Senators they're hosting, considering the layoff they've had between games, the, the amount of hockey the Canucks have played you know, over the past several weeks. But I, I think... Again, as of right now, knock on wood, there, there's a very good chance that we see that game go ahead on Saturday. Yeah, Canucks are still preparing for 50% attendance. Uh, let's hope that that doesn't change. Bill Daly on with uh, Donnie and Dolly today suggested that that is the NHL's expectation. Yep. Um, that's certainly the Canucks' expectation. It is hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that that's going to be the case considering that school didn't take place this week. Yep. Uh, but that's everyone's working assumption. I'd love to see a home game again. Like, we haven't seen a home game since the riotous atmosphere that was, well, I shouldn't use riotous in connection to this franchise, but, you know, since the thrilling atmosphere that was that Columbus Blue Jackets comeback. One of the one of the most fun, like, other than that Rangers game, yep. right? Uh, I, I mean, I can't remember, or, or some of those legacy nights that the, the other one might be just the, the Boudreaux debut against the Kings. Yeah, right. No, but the Columbus game, they were so much more inevitable. Sure. You know? Like, there sure. was something fun about that game for sure, but the way that that Columbus game felt, the, it felt like a party in a totally different way. The Boudreaux game was almost, um, fans weren't excited yet about the team again. You know, like, right, they were, like, right. happy for change, and then the Bruce, there, there it is thing happens organically, and it was kind of like a, a cute evening out, but, like, that Columbus game, it was like people came out, the crowd was into it right off the hop, things went badly. And then it all turned around. It was and and it was this moment where it felt tangibly different to root for this team in terms of that resilience, right? Other than that, like I'd love to be in that environment again, right? I'd love to be in that environment again. Hopefully, we see it on Saturday. Hopefully, it's all done well. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, let let's get into you know we we let off the show mentioning it. Elias Pettersson obviously pay, uh, placed in COVID protocol late afternoon yesterday by the Vancouver Canucks. So his status very much remains up in the air. And it's hard, you know, look, anytime anybody is in COVID protocol, obviously you feel a, a sympathy for them, right? Because that's a it's a challenging situation for any professional athlete to be in. But with Elias Pettersson specifically, 
it's been on the back burner a little bit since the Canucks have brought Bruce Boudreaux in and the team has started playing so much better, but it's still a daily topic of conversation in this market. And I know, you know, our colleague Sat has mentioned, you know, the Canucks are in the middle of this incredible streak and still on the postgame show, we get people calling in saying, what do you think? Should they trade Elias Pettersson? And there's still all of this focus and it's just another bump in the road in what is turning into a really challenging season for Elias Pettersson. And I don't think by any stretch you look at this and say, oh, he's in COVID protocol. You know, the season keeps going off the rails, but it's another challenge for him to overcome. And yesterday on Canuck Central with Sat and Dan Riccio, the debut of the new version of Canuck Central that'll air every day from four to seven here on Sportsnet 650, they had Bruce Boudreaux, Canucks head coach, on the program. And of course, one of the you know major talking points was Elias Pettersson, what he's done so far this year, what Boudreaux hopes to see from him for the rest of the year. Here's what Boudreaux had to say about Pettersson. All right, we'll try to get that clip for you as soon as possible. It's possibly uh, our our board op, Chris Faber, (laughs) to step away for a second. We will hear what Bruce Boudreaux had to say about Elias Pettersson momentarily. Before we do that, though, Drance, just your thoughts about Pedersen. You know, as I said, it's it's just another another setback, another obstacle to overcome in what's been a very challenging season, obviously a trying season so far for the star. Yeah, the I mean, I look at the five on five profile and for much of the season it's looked relatively similar. Of late it's really started to fall fall off, right? To the point where He's drawing penalties at about half the rate that we saw last season. And that for me, like, I like to look at that stat as a proxy for how involved in the game you are, how engaged in the game you are, especially if you're a player who excels by living inside um, the way, like, living inside defenders the way that Pedersen does, right? The reason that he drew so many penalties wasn't, you know, any dark art. It was that he was always ahead. Like, he was always inside. He was always getting position, or being dangerous, and opponents had to overreact to haul him down, what what have you, and the Canucks get a power play, and then when you have a good power play, which the Canucks should, <laughs> based on their talent, right, yep. uh, and, and certainly have over the course of the last month, like, that's a weapon in his arsenal. Right now, he's drawing about half the rate of penalties. We see his uh, individual expected goals rate uh, about half of where it has been for his career at the moment. Um, we see the shot attempt rate. We see the shot rate all at about half. Like he's at about 50% capacity at five on five. You know, that's really troubling, especially now that the sample is 40 games, yeah. right? Uh, it's getting larger. Um, we've also seen his usage change in a pretty subtle way under Bruce Boudreaux. I was checking this out with the help of uh, Blake Mika McCurdy, who runs HockeyViz.com. And HockeyViz.com, if you're a Patreon subscriber, they do these awesome graphs where it shows you how much a player plays with his own teammates and against the opposition with the sort of forwards ranked like 1 through 12 and the defenders ranked 1 through 6. So it gives you a really good proxy, like a quick snapshot of how a guy's quality of teammate and quality of competition is sort of shaping up and then compares that to league average. And Pedersen under green, and this was consistent, always played with Vancouver's absolute best. Like, the guys who got the most ice time were the guys who played with Pedersen. JT Miller, Brock Besser, obviously, are the sort of yep. most obvious ones. Um, Quinn Hughes got a ton of time with that, with that line totally. as well. Totally, yeah. yeah, right. Right now, we are seeing Pedersen's quality of team. Like, under Travis Green, Pedersen might have logged second-line ice time or fourth-most ice time uh, among all Canucks forwards, five-on-five, five, but he always 
was played with top line teammates, right? Um, and and as a result, also often face top line competition. Right now, Pedersen's usage is classic middle six. Yeah. Like he is no longer being put into this position to be the engine for this team, exclu- to the exclusion of other players. Right now, Pedersen is just a middle six, second line, but a middle six deployment, classic middle six deployment for this team over the over the course of the past month. It's worked for them, right? Like no one's going to argue with the results, but it is a it is a sort of a little bit of a change. Well, and so you yeah. know, we'll get to the Boudreaux clip shortly, but Boudreaux talked about confidence, right? The idea that anyone can lose their confidence, and in his mind, that's what's happened to Pedersen. Um, that Pedersen's still working hard, which you know I, I certainly agree with, but that there's something you know not clicking for him, and and that's impacting his game. I think there's no doubt about that. Like I think. When you consider how the entirety of the last 15 months have played out, right? From the high of the bubble, uh, everything we saw from him that offseason, not going back to Sweden, getting sort of out of his routine, uh, really leaning into the brand, right? The fact that the Canucks never engaged him in extension talks as a result of pandemic financial stress. The fact that he changes agents on the eve of the season. He comes in and he's got a different kind of dynamic right off the bat. Like, he didn't come in with that same alpha prove myself beating his chest feel that he had at the start and throughout of the 2019-20 season and he struggles right off the bat and then he sort of figures it out and he has this really severe wrist injury causes him to miss the rest of the season he goes back he trains trains hard right his wrist he thought had recovered pretty well it was no longer painful for him to shoot he worked on his shot but contract doesn't get done right yeah it's ultimately him like why, why did Hughes and Pedersen's deals get done? Because Hughes was hold it, held up by the Pedersen deal because Hughes couldn't sign an offer sheet. It was Pedersen's contract itself that was the compromise that allowed those deals to get done. Then he comes in, and, and look, I, I know these guys are athletes, right? They're pro athletes. We're used to commenting on them in a certain way, but do not underestimate the pressure of going and all of a sudden being the second highest paid player on the team, right? Do not underestimate the scrutiny the pressure that Pedersen has put on himself as a result of that, and then for the season to go the way it has, right? For him to feel responsible about it, for, for, for frankly, for the most part, to, to be as aware as he is of what mistakes he's making or where his game is at, and, and to be sort of persistently at this level... I think it's been a really challenging run for him from a mental from the mental side of the game. And, you know, I thought Boudreaux's comments sort of hit that nail on the head, even if I, I you know, I don't think the comparison with Ovechkin is necessarily the most salient one, considering the difference in their style and right. the difference in their production rates. I mean, Pedersen's on pace for 40 points. And even what Ovechkin had done it, through his career to that point that Boudreaux well, was talking uh, about. Ovechkin's yeah. struggle season, he scored 40 goals. Yeah. Right now, right now, through 34 games played, Pedersen's on pace for 40 points. I mean, it's... Uh, it, it is different, but I thought the big picture sort of um, observation about where Pedersen's game is at and the mental side of it, I thought that was dead on. We'll hear from Boudreaux in just a second. I'll say for my part, you know, the overall big picture, you know, not just for the rest of this year, not just for the upcoming road trip, but for the future of this franchise, my stance is still Elias Pedersen is a stud cornerstone piece 
for this team. I just think the talent that he showed, the playmaking ability, the drive, the ability to improve, all of that that he showed in the first part of his career here in Vancouver, for me that is still too much to ignore when you're projecting this player's future. But what it does start to do for me is just I start to question the timeline of when we're going to see that again, right? Because if you had asked me, and I, I probably said it on this show, Drancer, if you'd asked me in November, okay, come January, are we still going to be seeing this version of Elias Pettersson, or, we're, or are we going to be seeing the Elias Pettersson that everybody wants to see? I would have said, yeah, are you kidding? In two months, Elias Pettersson is going to be back to his old self. That hasn't happened. As you said, in fact, you know, he's kind of justifiably – started playing in a different role for this team. Rather than being the number one go-to offensive driving center, he's a middle six guy, a second-line guy for this team. And it's it's hard to argue with that based on his play. So long-term, I, don't, I still don't have real concern about his ability to be a legit number one center. Now, once you start to get above that, where does he you know rank relative to the rest of the league? I think those are all fair questions. But I do, I do just start to concern, get concerned about are we going to see it again this year, or is it going to be something that takes you know, a, a summer to reset, to, to have a fresh slate going in to next year's training camp before we really start to see that high impact again from Elias Pettersson? Not saying it can't happen this year, but it, it's, it's already dragged on a lot longer than I thought it would, and for me, that's the question right now. It's still not a question of if we'll see it again, but it is a question, for me at least, of when we will see it. Let's hear from Bruce Boudreau, though, and what he has to say uh, yesterday on Canuck Central about Elias Pettersson. Well, it's like it's like wins and losses. I mean, it, it's um, uh, for Leas, uh, for example, the last two practices, he's been uh, number one in in according to our strength and conditioning guy, and we have all these tests that they're all attached and everything um, it, to him uh, for as far as working goes. Or you know, there's a different different kinds of velocity and 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 output of effort and that and so like i mean the best thing that can happen now is he sees how hard he's working and to get some success from it and then all of a sudden i think he'll he'll really really take off but it's like anything else you work really hard and all of a sudden um uh and you don't get the success you know you sit back there well what am i doing this for i'm not getting any success from it and so i'm hoping that it really uh these practices really help him and uh any and again it's a little bit of confidence no matter how good you are confidence can happen to anybody and i've seen i've seen the one year where alex oveskin had lost his confidence and he was afraid to shoot the puck uh the year he got 32 goals and i mean he didn't want to he just wanted to pass it because his shot wasn't working he was breaking sticks and and so if a guy like alex can loses confidence than anybody can so it's uh, it's uh, it's important that uh, he has some success to to make it you know so he can sit back there and say i've done it now let's get back to work here and let's do this that's Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux yesterday on Canucks Central with Satyar Shah and Dan Riccio here on Sportsnet 650 talking about Elias Pettersson and his performance so far this season so far under Boudreaux what he expects the rest of the year and it, it's It's a simple answer. It's kind of the easy answer to point to confidence. I think it's also undeniably a major, major part of the story with Elias Pettersson. And the interesting thing, you know, hearing about 
how hard he's working at practice and how hard he's working in general. And I know, you know, we have fans texting in accusing Elias Patterson of pouting this year and things like that. Look, I think there's a big difference between pouting and being visibly frustrated. And, of course, Elias Patterson's high standards. Yeah, he's been frustrated at different points this year. I don't think that means he's been pouting. The work ethic has never been a question for me with Elias Patterson, but it is surprising that, yeah, he, he is so driven, he is working so hard, and it just hasn't translated into getting that consistent swagger back on the ice in games at the NHL level yet. And again, I you know it just seems logically when I map it out and I look at the talent of the player and the work he's putting in and all of that, it just seems like it can't go on forever. But I've also been saying that as I said for a couple months at this point. I don't know. I don't know what the the breaking point is going to be where something snaps and something changes and the results start to look different. Yeah, look, we don't know a ton about the injury, but I, I do think that you know half a season, you, you kind of get half a season. Sure. After a severe injury, after you miss as much time as Pedersen did from me, before I start to, you know, really take a scalpel to you, especially when everything I see in terms of the work ethic, uh, you know, is still there, right? In terms of how serious it is, in terms of how serious he is about his craft, right? Um, I'm still willing to wait a little bit before we sort of change our opinion, especially because you do not come into this league, do what Pedersen did over 200 regular season and playoff yeah. games, and then not be good. Like, that doesn't happen. That's not how hockey works. You know, we know from the level that other players who've come in and produce at a similar age, uh, similarly early in their career, like what they went on to do, and they all are basically star players, or at the very, very least, at the very least... They're top-line caliber players yep. for decades, for a decade plus, right? Like, Paul Stasny is the low-end comparable, right? That That is, you know, a really high bar, and, and I just, I'm not taking 35 games with everything that this team has gone on, well, it has gone on around this team, plus the injury that he endured, and saying this is his level, yep. when, when I've got a much larger body of evidence uh, that suggests that his level is a lot higher. So, I, I'm still willing to wait and see. I think the Canucks have to be, like as a franchise, oh, they absolutely no have to be. That. There's no uh, question about that for and, me. And I would strongly advise that fans have to be too, just because, look, we, we've we seen how electric this guy is and, and how dedicated he is and, and the way that he plays, even in the playoffs, the way that he ups his game. Um, you know, he, he clearly needs a little bit more time. Uh, I do believe that it'll come out of it. And, you know, I guess the proof will be in the pudding we, when the Canucks season resumes. We had a text come in saying, uh, predicting that Pedersen won't finish this contract with the Canucks. And I just think, man, <laughs> that is such an extreme step for the franchise to even consider taking. Moving on, voluntarily giving up on a talent like Elias Pedersen. I mean, look, you never say never about anything in the world of sports in the NHL, but... I just have such a hard time seeing that develop right now. I, I wanted to read this text as well. It says, how can you call Patterson a franchise-level centerman if he can't win draws, doesn't have dynamic speed, can only get a shot off when he has time and space, still built like a twig? The only dynamic thing he can do is one-time the puck. Seven million yikes. 
It's not. That's just not true. That the only dynamic thing you can do is one time the puck. We have seen the playmaking, the puck handling, the creativity, the ability to create that time and space that he needs to get his shot off. The ability to create that time and space for others. This is the definition of a dynamic, threatening offensive player. Or at least he has been. I know he hasn't been this year. And I know it's frustrating watching him right now. Yeah, it's always easy to pick on the flaws of a player or the things he doesn't do when they're in a slump. But Let's try to keep this in some perspective. The things that we have seen Elias Pettersson do on the ice consistently over multiple seasons for the Vancouver Canucks. It is the definition of game-breaking type talent that he's been able to display. And not just in flashes. Again, consistently, really, up until the last calendar year or so. Okay, We'll get off of Elias Pettersson of all tons of texts coming in. Maybe we'll read a few more of them in the second half of the show. Some other interesting comments from Boost Boudreau yesterday when he appeared on the station that I want to play about what the identity of this team might be going forward. It's the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks Insider, Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for The Athletic, here with you at Rogers Arena. The Canucks have wrapped up their practice. Bruce Boudreau just meeting with the media as we speak, and Boudreau breaking a little bit of news, saying that Alex Chason, Canucks forward, who was not on the ice uh, with the team as as they practiced earlier today at Rogers Arena. He has tested positive for COVID, so he is in NHL COVID protocols. On the good side of things, however, Bruce Boudreaux does say that he expects Brock Besser and Phil DiGiuseppe could be back at Canucks practice tomorrow ahead of their scheduled game with Ottawa on Saturday. So Chase on added to protocol. Of course, Elias Pettersson, as we told you, and as you heard yesterday, added yesterday evening to protocol, but sounds like potentially good news coming for the Canucks with Brock Besser and DiGiuseppe getting closer to coming back. Yeah, big. I mean, that would give them 12 forwards. Yes. So, and that assumes... That's always nice to have. That that assumes that they officially call up Rempel. Now, possibility that some other forwards could join the team before Saturday night, for sure, right? One would hope. One would hope that the club is able to get a Dickinson or a Dowling back as well. But, yeah, I mean, getting Di Giuseppe and Besser back, should it play out that way, would be a huge boost. And then we'll wait to see what, what occurs with Travis Hamanick. Unfortunately, we're on the air and couldn't get the update from Bruce Boudreau. But Boudreau had suggested that they were hopeful that Hamanick might be able to skate this week. To this point, we haven't seen that. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll still sort of wait on whether or not the Canucks get Hamannick back. Yeah, any other updates, breaking news, information from Boost Boudreau at his uh, post-practice availability that we see, we will relay to you as soon as possible. But there's the latest Canucks COVID update in the situation with Alex Chason being added to protocol. And per Bruce Boudreau, Brock Besser and Philip DiGiuseppe possibly back on the ice with the team tomorrow when they practice. Uh, lots of comments. No surprise here. Lots of comments coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. By the way, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. No surprise that whenever you start to talk about Elias Pettersson or any player of his magnitude, of his importance, who is struggling, you're going to get people fired up. People have lots of opinions. We always enjoy that. We welcome up. We welcome it. Keep hitting us up. 650-650. This one came in 
Jonathan from Abbotsford. He says, guys, even when PD was at his best, he was barely a point-per-game player. I agree he is a great player, but at his best, he has never shown he's a 100-point guy. That's Jonathan from Abbotsford. And look, that's a that's a totally fair complaint. I want to talk about that specifically for just a second, but I also will say there it's totally fair to have questions about the ultimate ceiling for Elias Pettersson, right? I don't have any question about whether he can be a first-line center on a playoff team. Going above that, it's fair to have debate, right? Can he be a top-10 center? Can he be elite? And, you know, we all have different definitions, and it's semantic to a certain degree, but it's fair to speculate, okay, what is that ultimate ceiling? I will say, though, on, on, the, on the point per game and the production standpoint, the thing with Elias Pettersson was, yeah, he was right around a point per game, but he was elite at 5-on-5 five five scoring, which is an incredibly valuable skill, and he always drove play, and that really stood out. He was elite at driving play, even though he was playing on teams that weren't very good <laughs> at driving play. When Elias Petters was on the ice, the Canucks still always had the puck, seemingly, in the other team's offensive end. And you add those things together, okay, yeah, it's not the eye-popping point totals of a Nathan McKinnon or a Leon Dreisaitl, but because he brings that value in other areas, I think that was always the path to him being a truly elite player. So I understand the point. Well, well although, although you know who doesn't have a 100-point season in their career? Nathan McKinnon. Do you know who's Fair never enough. hit 100 points? Nathan McKinnon. Do you know how many players have hit 100 points in the yeah, last it's decade? it's really hard to do. If there's 19 seasons, yeah. uh, 19 100-plus point seasons since 2009-10, and I'm obviously only using full 82-game seasons, so I'm not counting McDavid's. A season last year right. where he did it in 56, although that's outrageous. Yeah. Um, the fact is, is that three of those 19 are Crosby seasons. Three of those 19 are McDavid seasons. Two are Patrick Kane seasons. One is Evgeny Malkin. Um, what, like, you know, so so guys not named Dreisaitl, Crosby, McDavid, McDavid Kane. Um, uh, Kane, who've done it. It's Evgeny Malkin. It's Nikita Kucherov. Um, it's Henrik Sedin. Henrik Sedin's 100-point season qualifies yeah. here, and Nicholas Backstrom and Claude Giroux. So it's like, yeah. come on. A yeah. 100-point season is a ridiculously high bar. Yeah. You don't need to hit that bar even necessarily to be a superstar player. And you could, if, exactly. If you're an 80-point player and you're elite. This isn't the 80s. You're, exactly. If you're elite <laughs> at driving play and you're an 80-point player, guess what? You're an elite player. You're an incredibly uh, incredible. impactful, yeah. valuable franchise well, cornerstone and, player. And there, you know, I have this, I have this sort of, I have a lot of like pamphlet sayings, and I don't use them too often on the radio because I just sort of use them to to I'm organize, so excited. I'm so organize right the way now. that I think yeah. about the game. I, I might have even said this before, but it's like I have this vision of skills in hockey, of value provided by star level players in hockey, and and my my idea is you've got guys who can set the table, and you've got guys who can feast, right? And for me, a guy who sets the table is a guy who helps you create an environment where your team is more likely than not to score the next goal, right? Yeah. That's the fundamental thing that I care about the most in player evaluation is do you help set the table? Do you help create that environment? Um, and the reason I care about that so much is that the guys who can feast is that there's like 10 of them. There's like right. there's like 10 or 15 players who are capable of meaningfully driving percentages and efficiency and creating, you know, offense in that sort of pure way that we think about offense being created. There's, there's, they're so rare, now, what's rarer still is a guy who can do both, right? Sidney Crosby is a guy who, at his peak, did both, and that's what made him so special. He was a, an elite percentage driver, but he was also an elite play driver. And, you know, you also have guys like Steven Stamkos, who's like the ultimate 
can feast, feast guy, but he's not a he's not a play driver. Patrick Kane's the same. Patrick Kane's not a play driver. But Chicago had kind of both. They had Taves, who set the table, and Kane, who could feast. And I often think about the addition of Marion Gabrick, who's like the classic uh, can feast, doesn't set yep. the table guy. He's like the bad dinner guest who doesn't help you clean up your plates. But he made such a huge difference when he was acquired by a team of table setters in in a Los Angeles, yes. right? Who desperately a, needed someone who, who desperately, could finish. And then he had the goal that tied the game that allowed the Kings to beat the Hawks in seven in, in what, for me, remains one of the great playoff series uh, of the last ten years, along with Vancouver, Chicago, frankly, 2011, and, and probably Vancouver, Boston, 2011, too, but we don't have to talk about that. So, you know, at, in Pedersen's best seasons, which happened when he was 20, Right, uh, he was a guy who both drove play at an elite rate and and you know led the league in shooting percentage and on ice shooting percentage. Uh, I compared him once to a time machine. He turned goaltenders back into 1980s chain smoking five foot eleven <laughs> goaltenders. Right, like it was incredible. And you know that level of ceiling, being able to do both, that level of ceiling is so rare that you know you, you can't you can't get too caught up. Even though at this point, 35 games of subpar play, and some people like to lump the 20 games that he played, or at least the first 10 games that he played in 2021 into that too, like, I'm not changing my mind about a guy who could do that at the age of 20 and 21 over 35 games. I'm just not. I'm just not. But as that stretch lengthens, as the sample expands, I do think we, you know, are close we're not close, but we're we're getting close to a point where where maybe you do have to reevaluate it. Well, you can start to see it on the horizon, right? And and as I said, maybe it it's becomes just premature now. Yeah, maybe it becomes a situation where you look at it and say, okay, he gets the summer off, healthy, comes in with a full training camp, and then you really expect to see that version of Elias Patterson again. Maybe that's where this is headed. I still think there's time to turn it around, obviously, with the volume of games left in this season, but. As you said, look, look, maybe that comes at some point, but we're not there yet where, we're, where you're totally reevaluating the player. I, I want to get to a smart text in. Can you give an example of a player who is elite at setting the table but not feasting? Anyone maybe a bit underrated because folks only think about the feasters. Um, my favorite example of this, but it's a little bit dated, is uh, Justin Williams. Was, that's who was Justin on Williams, the tip of my tongue. Justin yep. Williams, 100% like during his absolute prime years. A Corsi all-star, Justin Williams. Uh, first yeah. in the league. The only guy who ever was better by Corsi 4 than Justin Williams was um, Pavel Datsuk. Like it was Pavel Datsuk 1, Justin Williams 2 um, for years. And, you know, <laughs> there was this idea like, is he elite though? <laughs> and ultimately, as it turned out, he was. Uh, just not at the same sort of just not in the same sort of way that, you know, a, a Crosby is, right? And that's fair enough. Um, I think you could put a Mark Stone in that category. I know he's been in the point per game, but yep. you look at his goal-scoring totals, they're never eye-popping, never cracked 30 goals, but the puck's always in the right spot when Mark Stone yeah, is on the he's ice. He's just the smartest guy on the ice at all moments. I, I want to I come up with a really good, like, under-the-radar one so that I can be uh, so that I can look smart down the line. So let's come back to this yeah. once I've had a well, sec to, the, the to other sort thing, my columns. We'll, we'll give you some time here in just a second because the other thing I wanted to do, and we talked to Canucks assistant coach Scott Walker on our show yesterday. Bruce Boudreau was on with Sad and Riccio in the afternoon, and I thought there was a kind of commonality that we heard from both coaches talking about just the mentality they want this team to play with. And with uh, with Scott Walker, you know, he's talking about the buy-in on the penalty kill. With Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux, it was talking about the overall mentality and specifically how important it is to be aggressive. And here's what Boudreaux had to say about that. Uh, it's 
better to be proactive. And if we make mistakes and mistakes out of effort, then you can live with them than always trying to defend. And uh, when you're always trying to defend, I mean, it's uh, it's a tough way to go because you make a mistake, it's in your net. And uh, I'd rather be aggressive and proactive in it. And, and I always believe that, uh, I mean, you can be very good defensively um, by being very good offensively. And uh, if you have the puck, that means the other team's not scoring. So that's sort of what we're trying to do and, and making it very difficult for other teams to, uh, you know, to, 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 to gain anything on us uh, in that regard. You know what? It, and that, that's a growth. I think of mine too is, is, uh, it took time to realize that the, the more pressure you put on them, the less opportunity they have of making a play. And uh, I think that stem, stems from sometimes when you're playing the superstars that uh, it's, you know, like, I mean, if you let, if you attack them and attack them and attack them and take the time and space away and do all of those things, they don't have as much opportunity to, to make plays. So I kept thinking, well, if it works against those guys, Let's make it work against everybody and let's take time and space away from everybody so they don't have an opportunity to to make a uh, make a play. It used to be when I was in Anaheim if Joe Thornton had the puck and we didn't attack him right away, you knew he was going to make a good pass. I mean, he was just mm-hmm. too good, so you had to had to make sure that he couldn't have the time to make a good pass. And that's what those great players do. That's Bruce Boudreaux, Canucks head coach, yesterday on the station with Sat and Dan Riccio talking about the mentality he wants the team to have, being aggressive, trying to force those turnovers, and specifically, you know, not just not giving the other team any time, any space when they have the puck. And it sounds simple, transfer, but there's also something so refreshing about hearing a head coach, not just in the NHL, but really in any professional sport in North America, say, he, he literally said verbatim, you know, we can be good defensively by being good offensively, right? We can be good defensively by having the puck, by being aggressive, by keeping the other team on the back foot instead of us being on the back foot. That is so unlike what we frequently hear from coaches, right? Where it's all about, you know, you got to take care of the details in your own end. The best offense is a good defense, etc. Now it remains to be seen long-term how, how successful it will be for the Vancouver Canucks. But I found that really fascinating. And, There was a lot of talk earlier in the season when Travis Green was still behind the bench for the Canucks about, okay, what is this team's identity? How do they want to play? And I think it's fair to, you know, point out that identity can be one of those buzzwords where, you know, a team starts winning and magically they find an identity, right? And they start losing and all of a sudden they've lost their identity. But I also think there is some validity to the concept. And I thought that was kind of the best concise explanation from Boudreaux of what he wants this this team's identity to be and it's one that's just based on aggression based on we want to have the puck and play in the offensive zone and as soon as we give it back we're going to be as aggressive as possible to try to take away the other team's time and space and get that puck back asap go back on the attack ourselves i want to get to this because i i have a analogy but i want to first uh just answer the reader's question here's my here's my three underrated table setters let's do it Uh, gallagher brendan gallagher matthew kachuk Matthew Kachuk and uh, Clayton Keller. 
I'm going to go with Clayton. Clayton Keller. Keller. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Under, underrated, especially in Arizona. Interesting. But uh, but a higher level player, I think, than people realize. All right. Gallagher, by the way, has been one of the most underrated players in the league for a while now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sensational player. Gallagher is the is the like the NHL's most uh, secret superstar yes. player. Frank. Phenomenal. Uh, all right. So let's talk about identity, right? The yep. Vancouver Canucks, much like. Um, you know, if you're if you're watching Netflix, right? They've uh, they've decided to switch from uh, the Travis Green Sensei Travis Green's <laughs> sort of Miyagi Do and, yes. and adopt Cobra Kai, right? Strike first, no mercy. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're they've embraced the offense, and we've seen that this higher event game works for them, and I think it works for them. Like like, you know, it's an interesting thing because to some extent. And we saw this in the bubble. We saw this in the bubble where a defensive approach helped the Canucks even though they were getting massively outshot because they were a team that had depth players, right, that that could be one-shot scorers. In particular, Adam Gaudet, Jake Vertanen, and Tyler Mott sort of further down the lineup. Uh, also, obviously, at the top of their lineup, they had Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, um, and JT Miller, and and again, the the skill on those guys up and down the lineup gave the Canucks an edge when they were countering, when they were relying on an against the grain attack to frustrate the Blues, and then later the the, um, the Knights, Vegas Golden, Golden Knights. Knights. Yeah. And I won't include the Minnesota Wild there because the Minnesota Wild, the uh, Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson literally just took over that series. But late as they went on, like a defensive approach worked for that team because they had more skill, more scoring efficiency in their lineup than other teams did and obviously had the goaltending edge. Now, now, obviously we know that it stopped working and now the Canucks are playing a higher event type of game and it's also working for them because they have enough skill that I think you're comfortable with the bet that against a lot of teams, this team is going to find a, a way to outfinish the opposition's finishers. And also, because again, with Demko you playing... You have Thatcher Demko. You have Thatcher Demko. And Thatcher Demko's been revelatory in his first year as a workhorse starter for this franchise. So, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because it's like the so long as you have the skill that the Canucks have, so long as you have the ability to convert the way that the Canucks have had for years, um, you know, like feasting is not this team's problem, even with Pedersen, who was sort of their their the guy like me at Christmas dinner going for thirds most often, like even with him sputtering, this team still has an embarrassment of finishing talent. Yep. And it doesn't really matter whether you're playing high event or low event. It can work either way, but it wasn't working for this team playing low event. And to Boudreaux's credit, even though the Canucks are now surrendering more in terms of what they're giving up defensively under Boudreaux than they were under Green in the first 25 games of the year, the ratio of what they're generating versus what they're surrendering is more favorable. And that has helped this team win games and carve out the sort of run that they absolutely needed to resuscitate, you know, uh, interest and and sort of uh, <laughs> not just interest, but a, a meaningful playoff shot uh, over the balance. And you start to look at the players, and a lot of guys have played well since Bruce Boudreaux came, over, came in, right? I, I understand that. But some of the players who have really been leading the charge, you know, we've talked about the great work that the JT Miller line has been doing. Miller was great when Travis Green was here too, but he's continued to be fantastic under Boudreaux. You look at Tyler Myers. He has been on a sensational run, really, really for this team. An exceptional run of form for Tyler Myers under Bruce Boudreaux. And you look at just those two players, right? And 
you think about it for a second, yeah, actually it makes a lot of sense that JT Miller and Tyler Myers would thrive under a system of aggression and playing on the front foot and trying to, you know, take away time and space rather than a more, okay, details-oriented, we're going to kind of sit back and play defensively system. Well, and, and although although it's not yet, and after practices like this that may change, it's not yet a systematic change so much sure. as it is a... a mentality. A, 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 right. It's, an, yeah. em, it's about emphasis. And, yeah. you know, I, I, it's amazing how much impact that can have, like... You you really sort of need to, especially in the regular season, prioritize, um, you know, some of that sort of ephemeral vibe thing that we're seeing from this team under Boudreaux. Work rate, right? Work rate, confidence. Like, you need to prize some of that stuff. Oh, and emphasis, and emphasis. You need to sort of prize some of that stuff over structure, yep. especially over a long season where – you know, no, you can't play perfect hockey for 82 games. Well, and sometimes, as we heard from Scott Walker yesterday on the show, right, it can be mm-hmm. something as simple as about how you're selling it to the players, right? It could be You could be ultimately asking for the same thing, but if you pitch it in a different way that gets them excited, that gets them to buy in, as you said, that addresses the mentality and the, changes the emphasis of what you're asking them to do a little bit, you might start to see those results. And, you know, this might be a conversation, we're up against the clock a little bit here, that we'll have to have uh, either tomorrow or next week as we go forward here. But I do think it's interesting if you start to kind of fix this idea of hyper aggression in your mind as what the team wants its identity to be. What does that mean for the roster, right? Because I look at a player like you know JT Miller and Tyler Myers; they're very well suited to play in that system. Are there other guys who maybe yeah don't fit into that version of a Canucks team? One guy who has no problem being aggressive, getting in people's faces on the ice—that's Connor Garland. He's going to join the People Show with Bick Nazar and Randeep Janda in about 10, 15 minutes' time. So keep it locked here on Sportsnet 650 to hear from Connor Garland post-Canucks practice. Always a fantastic interview. Drancer and myself will be back tomorrow, same time, noon, new time this week, noon to one tomorrow. (laughs) You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.